Thank you, Tony. If you have your Bibles tonight, I want to turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6. As we continue to make our way through here, when we think of creation in the Garden of Eden, we tend to focus on the negative side of it, right? The, the fall. Adam and Eve rebelled against the Lord, subjecting God's perfect creation to the curse of conflict and suffering and death. But something was hinted at immediately following that original sin, if you remember, that that actually more thoroughly drives the narrative of the Bible and all of human history, even more than the fall. The God who made all things out of nothing by the word of his mouth is filled with mercy. Because rebellion is an essential part of being connected to Adam, Genesis 6 begins to recount the increasing sinfulness of mankind, right? The wonderful story of the hope of the seed of the woman in Genesis 5 notwithstanding, for the most part, mankind is dead set against God and his rule over the earth. Dead set against him. As man increases, the Bible is saying, that becomes increasingly increasingly clear. Something else, however, also becomes clear, even clearer than the depth of our sin. The sovereign God who is ultimate and has complete determinative dominion over every inch of even his rebellious creation gives grace to his rebellious creation. Let's pray one more time. Father, we praise you and thank you tonight for your perfect word. And God, I ask that you would be with me and help me to speak clearly Regarding the truth of this text, Father, would you guide every single word that comes out of my mouth and the motivation of every single one of them, Lord, would you be with me? Would you watch over everyone who listens? Lord, I pray that everyone in this room, down here and in the balcony tonight, would be able to hear and understand your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read the first two verses. Of Genesis 6. We'll make our way down to verse 8 tonight. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So set against the backdrop of the line of Seth and the hope proclaimed about Noah through Lamech is the reality that the majority of mankind is evil and does not have its hope for the creation set on the promise of God being fulfilled. And something very strange happens here in the first part of chapter 6 when it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and made them their wives. Who are these sons of God? Okay, There are really no easy answers, really. But there is one that is, in my opinion, more probable than the others. And I believe these are the text is speaking of fallen angels. Sons of God is a phrase used in places, among other places in the Old Testament, in Job 1, 6, 2, 1, 38, 7, Psalm 82, 6. So um, that phrase, sons of God, is used very clearly to describe angels. So that term has traction elsewhere. Also, however, I think more importantly, Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2 in the New Testament are referring, I think, to this specific era in human history. Something was happening here. But there's also a callback in this text to the fall itself. Notice the wording here. The 
motivation of the sons of God here for the daughters of man is driven by what they saw. Okay? The son, the text says the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. It doesn't say they asked. Right? It's a very interesting way to word it. That language is reminiscent of Eve in Genesis 3-6, who when she saw, remember, that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Seeing and taking are reminiscent, just three chapters later, of something we saw in the fall. In other words, even if these particular sons of God refer to a group other than fallen angels, which that's possible, maybe the sons of God here were descendants from the godly line of Seth, who sinfully intermarried with descendants of Cain. Even if that was the case, the text links this event with the original sin, which I take to mean that what is happening here is negative. This is not a good thing. This is evil. In a moment in verse 5, you'll see the text make the immediate jump from the result of those unions to the inherent wickedness of mankind. They go right together. The serpent's temptation in the garden Back in Genesis 3 was Satan's attempt to foil God's intention for creation. Satan believes the word of God in the sense that he knows God will do what he says, at least has the power to do what he says. If if Adam and or Eve eat the fruit, remember what did God say? In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, what again, what better way to smash it in God's face if he has to kill the crown of his wonderful creation? And so I think these fallen angels here in Genesis 6, are continuing this rebellion by trying to subvert God's promise in Genesis 3.15 to help ensure that no seed of the woman will ever rise up against the serpent and crush its head. I think they're getting involved for that purpose, right? None of those will be that seed if they get in the middle and mess up the seed, not if they're all the seed of the serpent. I think that is what is going on here. But look at verse 3. It says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The King James Version in those translations would have this as, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, are more correct than the ESV is here in verse 3. So again, the immediate result of the union between these sons of God and the daughters of man is a pronouncement from God, immediately following that, is a pronouncement from God that he will not put up with this kind of thing forever, implying even more that what happened in the first two verses is part of man's rebellion. All right, God seems to be pronouncing here that mankind is on the clock. It's created strife between man and God, enmity. And so God is saying that they've got about 120 more years before judgment comes, or that he's going to drastically shorten the length of human life. Either way, the essence of the text remains the same, Mankind is about to be judged severely. God is tired of this rebellion. Look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now that's an intriguing thought, isn't it? What, what were they like? What was this Nephilim like? They were a class of human beings, a possibly a hybrid of some kind. They were giants. That's what Nephilim means, giants. They were different. They aren't around anymore. And the text calls them mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, that sounds very positive on the surface, doesn't it? Again, it's it's a very intriguing thought, 
right? Mighty men of old, men of renown. Sounds very impressive. The problem is that we should know by now it is Cain's line, not the godly line of Seth who wants renown in this world. Remember? It's the line of Cain that wants to make a name for itself and have renown and leave a legacy. Those from Seth's line, what do they do? What describes them? Again, they walk with God. That's all they do. That's all that is said of them. They sojourn here, never looking for a home, never settling down to make a name for themselves. That's why the link in verse 5 is what it is. Immediately, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. With the multiplication of man comes the multiplication of wickedness. See what the text is telling us? The first part of Genesis 6 then is once again a major threat to the promise of a godly seed in Genesis 3.15. The Bible keeps presenting us with a problem. Just when we think, just as we did at the end of chapter 5, that things are looking up. We're forced to ask again, where is this promised seed going to come from? We will reveal ourselves throughout the story of scripture to be increasingly unable to produce this seed. The Bible is going to force us to face the music continually. If this seed is ever going to come, he's not going to come from here. The Bible is going to keep putting that in front of us. What did the Lord see when he looked down on creation? Great wickedness, rampant wickedness that was inherent in us. It was coming from inside of us, not from outside of us. Every intention, every single one of the thoughts of his heart was only, exclusively evil, continually. Think about the words the Holy Spirit is using to describe the state of man. Every intention, only evil, continually. What a horrible race of people, right? That's what the Bible is saying. So, so much for the idea, I think we're all basically good people. No, we are not basically good people. We are basically depraved people in need of a savior, right? We're we're not basically good, right? The Bible flattens that out completely. Even at the level of what our intentions are, we are evil, right? This is a Very condemning description of mankind and his commentary on all mankind. And so look at verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Two things there. Obviously the big one is what does it mean that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth? Did God make a mistake? It's important in um, moments like this to remember that Ultimately, Scripture has the authority to interpret Scripture. Don't ever forget that. And that's how we understand Scripture, is that Scripture interprets Scripture, and that's where we get our meaning. We're not free to impose onto the text what we would like it to mean or think it means. But a good rule of thumb, as we think through that, is that difficult texts are much more likely to be interpreted correctly if we use clearer texts to do that. Does that make sense? You use the clearer passages to understand the more confusing passages. The overall witness of Scripture will not, it just won't, that's why that that verse is such a um, a, a burr, is because the minute we read it, it doesn't jive with everything else we read, right? That that, um, it will, the, the witness of all Scripture will not let us conclude that God regretting 
could possibly be the same thing as when we regret something, as though God made some sort of mistake, the outcome of which he didn't see coming, and so it made him regret that he had done it. When these words are used, because they are used one more time in Scripture, when they're used of God again, it's regarding the installation of King Saul. Do you remember the... They're followed, those words, same words, that God regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel, are followed very closely by this reminder from God's prophet in 1 Samuel 15, 29. Okay? We read it to you. And also, the glory of Israel, that's God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So, when we read that, we understand. We stand under the authority of God's word. It shapes us. We don't shape it. When just a few verses earlier it had said that God regretted that he made Saul over king over Israel, if God does not regret because he's not a man, then whatever it means, it doesn't mean what it means for a man to regret, right? So that's how we, we try to work through the text. Meaning, we lack a word in Genesis 6-6 just as we lacked in 1 Samuel 15-11 in English to properly convey what is happening in God here when it says he regrets. The God who is holy, who made all things by the word of his mouth, in whom there is no darkness or shadow of turning, does not regret like we do, because God does not make mistakes. For one thing, there are some situations where God will not relent from a previous decision, while there are others where he does decide to do so based on human responses. The former are in line with God's sovereign decree, The other instances describe how a sovereign God who transcends time genuinely interacts with his creation. Neither are easy to understand. And my comments here certainly don't close the book on trying to understand all this. We're just trying to get some sense of it. At the end of the day, this is very hard to understand. But what does come through here is something that we learn as this word or idea is used elsewhere in Scripture. It's a a principle about God that we see God is moving here in a decisive and distinct way that will change the previous order of things up until this point. That's why I think the sentence reads the way it does. When God makes a momentous decision to change things in the order of his creation, the word that is used in Hebrew is naham, which can be translated regret. The momentous change in 1 Samuel was that God was going to raise up a new king. In Genesis 6, it is that God is going to respond to the wickedness of his creation in verse 7 with a massive judgment. Let's read verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. First of all, God grieves at the state of his creation. He's not static about it. He's moved by it. He feels sorry for us. What is this text telling us then about God? Because that's its true purpose. Go back to verse 6. Let me read 6 and 7 again. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. God is, quote, decisively impacted by the suffering, hurt, and circumstance of his creation. Now, 
forget for just a moment, not don't wipe it out of your mind, just forget for a moment about the wording here of this being hard to understand. What is clear? What is easy to understand here? The text hides nothing about God. It isn't hiding anything. The text reveals his heart to us. God is not some kind of angry tyrant bent on destruction if we step out of line. We could have anticipated this response because of Genesis 3, right? In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But they didn't. They didn't die in the day that they ate of it. This is not a tyrant. right? This is not a capricious God on the top of Mount Olympus playing chess with human beings. This is a father increasingly aware that the crown of his creation is irrevocably hostile. God, God is not angry here as much as he is grieved here. Notice that in the text. The judgment doesn't come from a place of rage. It comes from a place of grief. Brueggemann says, God does not stand over against, but with his creation. Right? This is pain that God feels. Grieved, very interestingly, is the same Hebrew word used to describe Eve's pain in childbearing back in Genesis 3.16. So, beloved, when judgment comes, and it's about to, it's not an unhinged, uncontrolled loss of God's temper that comes out in naked and furious wrath. It's the grief of a God whose creation has turned against his design and his intention. But, in verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Where did Noah come from again? Right? Isn't th- this is interesting? I thought we had moved beyond that. Beloved, the scripture traces the line of the promised seed all through the Bible, all the way to Jesus. And if we're reading and watching, it never departs from it. Okay? Go back up to 528 and 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Well, maybe Lamech was on to something there. Because his son Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, which again is a really unfortunate translation. The King James is correct here. The word is hen and it means grace. The word grace rather than favor lets us know that Noah didn't earn God's favor by being a good man. That's how I think we normally approach the text. Everybody was evil, but there was this one really great guy named Noah and God had favor on him. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. Noah was the only person God found that had any good on him, good in him in in all the earth. No, you only need to go back up to verse five to know that's not true. It's not, it's not true. There are no good men left on the earth. What verse eight reveals shockingly in the middle of judgment is that there is, however, a God who is good in heaven. Grace is not earned. Grace is given. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord is how that should read. God looked down then and said, this is how it worked. In the middle of all this evil, I will save you and I will save others through you. I pick you, he said to Noah. That's what the text reveals. In 7.1, when we get there next week, God seeing that Noah was righteous in his generation would be then the result of his grace on him in 6.8. 
You see that? Noah is righteous after God had grace on him. Not in order for God to have grace on him. It's a very important chronology there. Grace made Noah righteous. Right? We just read it this morning. I didn't do that on purpose. But you remember Hebrews 11, 7? That speaks to exactly what we're seeing here. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, after God had shown him grace in Genesis 6, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Right? Noah was eventually made righteous because he had faith in God, which was a result, again, of God's grace. What did Noah do that made him righteous in Hebrews 11? Well, he had faith in God. 6.8 tells us why Noah had faith in God. Because God had grace on him. That is where the implications of this text for us finally hit home. Even though it's clear that God is grieved to his heart at the rebellion of mankind, God is sovereign over his creation. Verses 7 and 8 are making two things very clear. All right? Very clear. The first is this. God is sovereign. What, what, what does God do when he sees that his creation is increasingly wicked? What does he do? He makes a decree. He's going to destroy. Now, what if the creation says, no, 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 that's not going to work for us. We, we don't like that. Too bad. Right? Too bad. Why? Well, God is sovereign. Not the creation, not the human beings, not their will, not their desire. God is sovereign, right? You see this all through the Bible. Now, one of the ways we try to deal with this, we mentioned this before, we really don't like this because it's so clear. So we, we made this into like nursery decorations for babies. This beautiful moment where God kills everybody and saves all the animals. Put up little stickers in the nursery and buy little baby giraffes. Because it was so cute when God killed everybody. This, that, that's, that's one way we try to rationalize this in our minds. That this, this, is, this is judgment. And God is making a decree and he just does it. He doesn't ask anybody. He doesn't gauge the creation. Would you guys be okay? Because I don't want to violate anybody's will. Would it be okay if I just destroyed everything? No, that's not going to work for us. Okay, I won't do it. No. No. It's not the way it works. It's never the way it works. We are not sovereign. God is sovereign. And the will of God is shown in two ways throughout scripture, right? This, this is, this is important for us to, there is his will of what we could call desire or preference. We could call it permissive will. Do not murder, right? That's God's will that we not murder each other. And yet people murder each other all the time, right? So obviously there's a will that God has that can be disobeyed, overturned, right? In that sense, Standing over that, however, as ultimate, is God's will of sovereign decree, which the Bible describes over and over again, which elicits texts like, I'm just going to read two. These are all over the Bible. Do not take my word for it. Don't take my word for any of it. Go read the Bible. Okay? I'm just going to read two. How, how can we say that God is sovereign over everything even the people in his creation and what they do or don't do because we have texts. Daniel 4, 34 and 35. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. So ask King Nebuchadnezzar who's writing that, 
uh, if, if he decided one day that he was going to do the right thing, or if what happened is God basically drove him into the wilderness to grow his fingernails and his hair out and made him see the truth. Ask Nebuchadnezzar which of those things happened, right? For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? What do you do with a text like this? You submit to it, or you try to keep it from saying what it says. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Now, what makes him unique in this text? What is it precisely that makes him God in Isaiah 46? Listen. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand over against other counsels, is what that means. And I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. So, again, be careful with the celebration of our own autonomy. We don't have autonomy. We don't have it. It's an illusion from the fall in the Garden of Eden, which the sin was, we'll be like God. We'll be free to determine things on our own. And God says, no, you won't. That's a sign of the fall in us, this desire to be autonomous. It's evil. Only God is autonomous. Satan has us all duped. If God is sovereign, nothing and no one else is sovereign. Why is that scary to the believer? Why is that offensive to his own people? Why? If God's freedom can't eventually override mine, what in the world do we do with these texts? What do we do with them? How in the world can we ever have any assurance or conviction that God can keep even one of his promises to us if he isn't the one finally calling all the shots. You, you can't plan the end and not plan the means, beloved. God is sovereign. He said that, not me. He's so sovereign in Genesis 6 that if he decides by his will of ultimate decree that he's going to blot out man and all the animals and birds from the face of the earth, then that is precisely what is going to happen. Because God is sovereign he presumes, reserves, and exercises the right to rule and order decisively and ultimately over even a rebellious creation. That is why you and I are commanded to talk like this. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That's a quote from the Bible. James 4.15 and what was at stake there? What was happening in that text? Woe to you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a city and, and stay there and get gain and make a profit. Right? Rather you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
God is sovereign down to the details of my life is what the Bible actually teaches. If the Lord wills, I'll go home tonight and watch the football game. If he wills that I perish, I will perish. That's, that's the scripture, right? That's the scripture. God is sovereign over everything. The, the amazing thing is what James 4 reveals is that if, to have any other philosophy than if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He's that sovereign. To have any other philosophy, James calls it arrogant boasting and it's evil. And then he says, so for those that know the good they ought to do and don't do it, to them it is sin. So you see how sinful we are. Even, even in the way we approach life and think that we're sovereign is arrogant boasting and it's evil. The Bible is so clear we should know better, but we still reject it. We're sinning. We need grace. We need mercy all the time. All the time. Even when we make our plans. My goodness, we need God to be merciful. God is sovereign over everything, everyone, every decision I make. Beloved, this is the word of God. Well, then does that mean we're all robots? Does it feel like that? Does it feel like you're a robot tonight? I wanted to go to Target, but God made me go to Walmart. Do you, does your life feel like that? No. Right? No. So don't, don't make a straw man and then reject it. That's not the way it works in real time. What we need to understand is that whether we realize it or not, God is absolutely sovereign over every atom in his creation. This is God we're talking about. This shouldn't be a stretch. Who else do we want to be sovereign? Us? My, my goodness. We're six chapters into the Bible. We're, we're sleeping with angels, people, right? You don't want us to be sovereign. It's the rhetorical we in Genesis six. Difficulties with texts, beloved, don't change the meaning of texts, okay? Difficulties with texts don't change the meaning of texts. So Genesis 6 would be terrifying, more terrifying, if God was sovereign and God was a tyrant. Now that would be scary. But the sovereign decree of verse 7 immediately runs into the sovereign decree of verse 8, because that's what it is, where this same God gives grace to a sinner. So when we put the different pieces of this text together, what do we find? What what do we find here? The sovereign God who is ultimate and has complete determinative dominion over every inch of even his rebellious creation gives grace to that rebellious creation. This is the God revealed to us through Jesus Christ on the pages of Scripture. A sovereign God of grace. What hope is there for mankind in Genesis 6? What is the word of relief here? What is the glimmer of hope? Where does it come from? It doesn't come from the earth. It doesn't come from humanity. It comes from the same God that pronounced judgment. The ark will be God's salvation from God's reign and flood. Beloved, the cross of Jesus Christ then is where the justice and the grace of a sovereign God will finally meet. And what comes out of the kiln is eternal salvation for sinners. 
where God's justice is fully satisfied and his grace is fully poured out. That is what Jesus Christ will finally come and accomplish for us. Have we improved tonight since the days of Noah? Goodness, no. No. In fact, what, this is amazing. What does our Lord prophesy? What will the world look like to let us know that he is standing at the door in Matthew 24, 37? It will look like the days of Noah. Think about that. The whole story of the Bible is how we cannot get ourselves out of exile. Right? That's the whole story of the Bible. We, we return to the days of Noah. In fact, the days of Noah are so perfect for describing the state of mankind at all times that that's when we know Jesus is at the door, when it looks like that again. And it's looked like that since Jesus went back to heaven. Meaning that the plight of man at the beginning is the same plight man is in now. And just as Genesis 6, 8 revealed... God revealed to us now through the word of his son. When the days are like the days of Noah, there is grace for sinners. Beloved, the only hope we have, the only hope people this depraved have, is that God will somehow overcome our rebellion, overcome our unbelief, overcome our resistance to his call, overcome our rejection of his word. Our only hope for salvation has always been, is, and will always be the sovereign God of grace. Always come to him tonight. Believe in him. Rest in him because there you and I are secure. This is who he is. The God holding your salvation in his hands holds everything in his hands. The sovereignty of God is not a threat to our salvation. It's the source and the guarantee of our salvation. How could we ever be saved if God isn't holding all the cards? Who's strong enough? Who's good enough? Who's consistent enough? Who's righteous enough? Who's faithful enough? Jesus. Just Jesus. So when you hear the words I'm about to read to close us with tonight, hear them again. I I reference this text all the time. I love this text. But hear them this time as spoken to you because they have been by the sovereign God of all grace. Hear them this time as the God of Genesis 6 speaking them to his people in this world. Listen to Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. All past tense verbs. Can't get around the text. All past tense verbs. What then shall we say to these things? Really? (laughs) Well, we should say this. If God is for us, if the sovereign God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If it's up to us, we separate ourselves all the time. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, let me tell you something. There better be a sovereign God backing up those sentences or they mean nothing. And there is. There is tonight for all who will believe on him. And the door is open for all who will believe on him. The sovereign God of grace is calling to sinners to come home to him. Do it. You see, I already follow Jesus. I already believe in him. Rest in him. Keep believing in him. Come to him. Don't turn from him. Don't run from him. The sovereign God of all grace is the savior of all who believe on him perfectly, completely, and forever. If you need to pray tonight for any reason, any reason at all, I invite you to come. I'll be down here in the front. If you need help with anything, I'm here. He closes in prayer and then Tony will sing and I'll be waiting. Let's pray. Father, we praise you tonight for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I praise you for your word. I pray, Father, I ask you that we would be a church that stands on it and nothing else. Father, what else do we have but the word you have given to us in your son, Lord, make us stand. Help us stand. Help us not waver. Let us not be afraid of the difficult texts. Let us trust in you because you wrote them and you love us and you'll keep us forever. You know all our pain, all our grief, all our sorrow, all our struggles. You know everything about us. Father, your son is the anchor that holds and our hope is in him. And so in his name we pray. Amen.
thanks so much, Tony, for coming again, which reminds me of another person, people to thank that I, I wanted to mention. Bob, get those slides, and June gets them in. Bob puts them up. Bob and Lacey help up there. And so just people are always helping, always doing things. I want to try to recognize them as I think about it. Thank you all so much for everything that you do. Thank you so much for being here tonight, everybody. Uh, let me pray and we'll be dismissed. I hope you have a great week. Father, we thank you tonight for all that we have that you've bought for us forever in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, give us the faith to keep believing till the last sun goes down for us, Father. We pray and ask these things in his name, in the name of Christ. Amen.